to us. God, we ask today, Lord, as we look to your word for instruction, God, as we continue to look in 1 Corinthians for how we should conduct ourselves, not only believers individually, but believers as a church corporately, God, we just ask that you would speak to us, Lord, guide us. God, we thank you for your spirit that's among us. Lord, we ask you move in mighty and powerful ways. And Lord, help us to be cautious to give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all things that happen. We thank you for Christ in his name. Amen. Good morning. About half of you are awake. Everybody else is still asleep. (laughs) Try again. Good morning. There you go. I'm Travis. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I've been working on the staff maybe for about five or six months, something like that. I work full-time with a group called the North American Mission Board. It's a grouping of about 47,000 churches around the world, and our sole purpose is to see missions done and new churches started in North America. We also have an international arm called the International Mission uh, Missions Board that does the same thing around the rest of the world. So I do that full-time. That's my 60 or 70-hour, 80-hour, 90-hour-a-week job, depending on how much I have to do that week. And then I serve as a volunteer here on staff. And I serve in the areas of discipleship and multiplication. Here's what that means. That means I'm the staff nerd. (laughs) Along with Jared, right? Uh, We are the staff nerds kind of together. I'm one of those guys that has a PhD. That means piled higher and deeper, right? (laughs) I have a PhD in something called apologetics. That's the defense of Christianity. And... I I taught for 10 years at a university in the areas of world religions and philosophy and apologetics. So what that means is, is that I'm that guy who sits around thinking about things that ultimately don't matter. (laughs) I'm the guy who can probably make you think you really don't exist, because I'm a philosopher. I can make you think things don't exist. We can talk about the chair you're sitting in, how it really doesn't exist. You know, we can go all that kind of stuff. So I taught at a school for about 10 years, and here's kind of the way the philosophers work in a school, just so you can kind of know where I'm coming from. There's the evangelism guys over here. They teach people how to go out and share Christ and do it really effectively, or the missions professors, how to go and do missions and do it effectively. So they go out, they share the gospel, and they see people get saved. And then that hands them off then to the profs who teach in the areas of Bible and theology. So there's the people over here that get saved, and they come over to the people who have been learning from the profs in Bible and theology, and then they fix them right? And then they hand them off to me, and I mess them up. I make them, again, think they don't exist. We talk about the existence of God or their arguments for God. I mean, all that sort of stuff, right? So that's just kind of where I'm coming from. I'm the staff nerd, again, along with Jared. Now, the other thing you need to know about me is this. You can probably tell by my accent, I'm not from these parts. (laughs) I grew up in Dixie, not southern Utah. (laughs) Every time I hear somebody describe Dixie, and then they, and I immediately can kind of take from context, we're talking about St. George, I kind of laugh. Because in St. George, they don't say y'all and eat grits. (laughs) They say you guys, and they don't even know what a grit is. I grew up in South Carolina, the actual Dixie. I grew up about as far as possible as anybody could from Kevin Lund. He grew up in the extreme northwest, and I grew up in the extreme southeast, right? I I grew up even further east than Robert did in Alabama. Now, what you have to understand about the southeast is this, is that when we grew up, and Robert may have been this way in Alabama, maybe Donna, Mississippi, I don't know, 
But in South Carolina, we grew up thinking there's the South and there's the North. And that's it. New Mexico is the North. Because it's not the South. San Diego, even though it's further south than my hometown, is the north because it's not the south, right? So I grew up in the south. I grew up where there are more Baptists than people. In fact, in my hometown, there are more Baptist churches in my county than there are Christian churches in all of Utah. I grew up in a place where you can go to some intersections and there's four Christian churches, one on every corner. I grew up in a town where there are 14 Presbyterian churches with a number in the title, First Pres to 14th Pres, because First Presbyterians split 13 times over very important issues. You know, what color should we put on the wall? I want beige. No, I want blue. Okay, we're forming a new church, right? That kind of thing. That's just the context I grew up in. I grew up in a context where churches don't really work together very much, right? They just, because they're big enough to do whatever they want to do on their own. Another thing you need to know about me is this. I like really good movies. Anybody else like good movies? Now, I, I said this in the first service, I'll say it again. Not movies like Robert likes. <laughs> Robert likes movies that go on for four days. Stacy and I had never, or I had never, Stacy may have my wife, I'd never seen Gone with the Wind all the way through. I remember, I grew up in the South, so that's like my movie, right? So Robert finds this out, and he says one Sunday morning, hey, you should come to the house this week, we'll watch Gone with the Wind. Three days later, it was done. <laughs> the first two hours are great, it's killing, and they're shooting, and it's all about the Civil War, and that's all, like, I'm thinking, yeah, Southern, right, beating my chest. And then there's the next two and a half days that's all love story. And I'm thinking, this is like days of our lives, <laughs> but with y'all thrown in every once in a while. I like good movies. I also like good music. Now, I like good music, right? One of the kind of music that I like is country. Not new country. That's not country. <laughs> if you put new in front of it, or they're not close to dead, it's not country. About as far to the present as I want to come is the end part of Johnny Cash's life and maybe even into George Strait and Garth Brooks, and that's it. Everything else is junk. <laughs> You'll find out about me very quickly. I'll just tell you what I think, and I don't care, right? There's my opinion, and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> I love, if you like country music and you can't name the four highwaymen, you don't like country music. <laughs> right? That's just how it works. Also like rock music, old rock, 60s, 70s, 80s. My favorite rock band is Rush, right? One of my ringtones is a Rush song. I I've seen Rush 14 times live. Also like Billy Joel. One of my former colleagues used to say is slowly rocking America to sleep. <laughs> seen him 14 times live. I, I, I have this problem, right? I like things and I just get onto it and I don't stop. Like Rush, I like Billy Joel. Also like the Beatles. Probably the greatest band ever formed. Right? Some of you might be thinking, no, you're crazy. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> so in 1969, the Beatles released an album called Abbey Road. The album very quickly became the number one selling album in the United States 
and in the United Kingdom, almost overnight became the number one seller. If you don't know the album, though, you probably know the album cover. The album cover may very well be the most iconic album cover ever produced on a record. Here it is. This is the album cover from the Beatles album, Abbey Road. One music review calls it, quote, arguably the most recognizable album cover in pop music history. So on the cover of the album, you see the four Beatles crossing Abbey Road in London. If you've ever been, I've never been, but if you've ever been to Abbey Road in London, probably what you've done is you've found four people in your group and you've tried to recreate this scene crossing this particular crosswalk. On the cover, you see the four Beatles, right? John Lennon is first, the lead singer. He's dressed in solid white. Secondly is Ringo Starr, dressed in all black. Third is Paul McCartney. He's wearing a suit. Notice he doesn't have any shoes on. And then fourthly is George Harrison. He's wearing a denim shirt with jeans and tennis shoes. Now, this is a strange album cover to create, right? Why in the world would the Beatles, and at this point in 1969 when this is released, are at the absolute apex of their musical career, why would they do something weird like this? It, they didn't do it weird just because they're the Beatles, right? If it was the Grateful Dead, then we could say it's weird just because it's the Grateful Dead. Or if it's Fish, the new version of the Grateful Dead, we could say it's weird just because it's Fish, right? But the Beatles actually did this for a reason. Here's the reason they did it. The reason they did it all revolves around a conspiracy theory that was centered on the Beatles, and you can sum up that conspiracy theory in three words. Anybody know what it was? It starts with Paul and ends in is dead. Paul is dead. There you go. You got it, right? It's this conspiracy theory that Paul was actually dead. In fact, some fans of the Beatles alleged that Paul McCartney actually died in a car crash in January of 1967, and that the three remaining Beatles, John, Ringo, and George, replaced him with a look-alike, an imposter, albeit a really good one who looked and sounded exactly like Paul McCartney, but they alleged that he had been replaced. So, the band takes this conspiracy theory and they have some fun with it because they knew what was going on. They'd been reading the National Enquirer. So they have some fun with this thing and they want to take the conspiracy theory and push it one step further. These are my kind of people, right? One of my spiritual gifts is spite. <laughs> some, oh, okay, right? This is what they're doing. They're doing this for spite. So... The album cover is all based around Paul McCartney's supposed death and funeral. Now, looking at the album cover, you see John Lennon is wearing white. They did that to show that John would have been the preacher for Paul's funeral. Ringo is wearing black. He's the mourner at the funeral. Paul, thirdly, is in a suit but with no shoes on to show that he's the guy being buried at the funeral. And then George, fourth, is in a denim shirt and jeans and tennis shoes to show that he's the grave digger. They did all this around the conspiracy theory. In fact, they took it so far, maybe hard for you to see, but if you look in Paul's right hand, you see a cigarette. Paul McCartney was actually left-handed. The Beatles said, hey, put a cigarette in your right hand to make the conspiracy theorists think that your imposter look-alike is right-handed, even though you were really left-handed. That's how far they went with this, right? Now, the theorists, these conspiracy theorists, looked for meaning in everything 
on this album cover. As soon as they saw it, they went, oh, yep, Paul's really dead. I told you so. And they started going crazy with it. So if you see the white Volkswagen Beetle in the background there, if you were to look at a picture of that and zoom in on the license plate, the license plate on that Beetle says 28IF. And the conspiracy theorists said if Paul would have been alive when this album was released in 1969, he would have been 28 years old. So it says 28IF. 28 if he had never died. The police uh, wagon there on the other side of the street from the Volkswagen Beetle shows that the police were never involved because the plate tag on the front of it is actually broken a little bit. It's to show that the police weren't really involved in Paul's death, that they just kind of kept their hands off of it. They even looked at the back of the album cover, the conspiracy theorists did, and saw dots on the back of the album cover. And they did what every good four-year-old does, they played Connect the Dots. Guess what the dots showed? When they played Connect the Dots, it produced the number three, the remaining number of real Beatles who were alive. That's how far they took this. They even saw a sign on the back of the album cover in the background that said Beatles on it, and it was broken to show that the band was really broken up in 1967, two years before this was released, when Paul supposedly died. The entire enterprise brought fans together around the Beatles in ways nothing else could, especially these conspiracy theorists. I mean, they just went crazy with this. They coalesced around this single message that Paul is dead, and they took it to the extreme. Now, interestingly, although the album cover brought fans together around this Paul is dead theory, what fans didn't know is that before this album was released publicly, the Beatles had secretly broken up as a band. This would be their second to last album released as a band. So although fans thought they were picking apart a conspiracy theory, they were majoring on the minors. They came together, but they came together over something that ultimately didn't matter. And rather than spending time listening to their favorite band and what a lot of people would call they're the best band in history at the climax of their career, they focused on things that weren't important. And in quite possibly the greatest piece of irony in music history, the first song on the Abbey Road album is Come Together. Rather than agreeing with critics that said Abbey Road was the best album from the best band, fans argued over whether or not Paul was dead. Isn't that a perfect picture of how we live our lives individually and how we live our lives in the church corporately. We focus on things that don't matter. Put differently, we major on the minors. We spend too much time in life and in the church on things that don't matter. Many times that wrong focus centers on different types of giftings, not just inside the church but outside as well. And that very quickly turns into a discussion about varying opinions, who's right, who's wrong. That's when emotions become involved and tempers flare. You should, have, should go back and read some of the comments by Beatles fans, people who thought Paul was dead, people who didn't. They were going at each other. The Beatles did get, they did get one thing right on the Abbey Road album. We should come together. But we don't come together over music. 
All right, let me just step back here for a second and say this. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Don't hear me saying that we should come together as religious people as a whole and push aside belief differences that are significant, like issues like the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Jesus or salvation or what Scripture is. We should not brush those things aside. Those are the most important things we hold. The entire Old Testament is summarized as worship the one true God. The entire New Testament is summarized as worship His self-revelation of Himself in His Son. And if we don't do those things in the right way and worship the one Holy One of Israel, the one true and living God, then we're without hope. We don't worship the one true Jesus, we're without hope. If we don't follow what He said about salvation, we're without hope. And if we don't follow His Word, we're without hope. So we shouldn't come together just because we're humans, generally, and push all those differences aside. No, we should come together as a church, as believers in Christ, and focus on the gospel. And our next passage in 1 Corinthians 12, you want to go ahead and turn there, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31. Turn if you have a hard copy or find if you have an electronic version. will show us how we can come together as a church and as Christians around the world. So let's look at that passage and see what Paul has to say, and the Apostle Paul, not McCartney. And I have a feeling that by the end of today's text, we're going to hear Jesus saying, come together right now over me. Now let's do a quick summary of 1 Corinthians, of where we've been so far, so we can remember kind of what's been going on. Because here's what I'm going to argue this morning. What I'm going to argue is, is that 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31, is the hinge on which the entire book of Corinthians swings. The first part of 1 Corinthians leading up to this is Paul saying, you people are dumb, and here's why. Then he says right here in this passage, come together. And then the rest of the book, he's going to tell us how we do that. So in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4, we find out that the church in Corinth has been divided over their favorite preachers. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And then there's the guy over in the corner who's got the, he's the super religious guy. Yeah, well, I follow Jesus. And you want to smack him, right? <laughs> they're divided over their favorite preachers. And then in chapter 5, they're divided over some sexual immorality in the church. Chapter 6, they're divided over taking lawsuits to unrighteous judges. In chapter 7, they're divided over issues of marriage and divorce. Chapters 8 through 11, they're divided over issues of food that's been sacrificed to idols. Another part of chapter 11, they're divided over issues of head covering. In the last part of chapter 11, they're divided over issues of what can basically be called snobbery at communion. Remember, the wealthy people come in first, they eat all the stuff, and then the workers come in, they have nothing. And as we heard in the last, uh, last week, in the first part of 1 Corinthians 12, <coughs> they're divided over spiritual gifts. You kind of want to look at them and go, seriously? Is that really your final answer? This church has issues. They're divided. I'm really honestly surprised that there's not in this church in Corinth division over division. That they're not just divided for the sake of being divided. But that's what's going on. So we get to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and Paul says, I'm done. Now Paul at this point is a much better person than I am. He's a much greater Christian than I am. Which for those of you who know me is not surprising because I tend to be blunt. Paul was that way sometimes, but he tries to smooth things over a little bit before he just goes straight for the jugular. 
I would have jumped in in 1 Corinthians 1 and said, you are dumb, and for the next 15 chapters said, here's why I think you're dumb. And then at the end said, by the way, you're dumb. Just hit them with it. Paul doesn't do that, though. He says, you're divided over this, and you shouldn't. And you're divided over this, and you shouldn't be. You're divided over this, and you shouldn't be. And then he gets to 12, and he says, okay, now it's time to move forward. He calls them to repentance, and then he tells them how to move forward from there. So let's see how we can come together right now over Christ. If you will, if you're able, stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. One member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. Let us not run in front of the cross or lag behind, but keep us at the feet of Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. First of all, here's what I want us to see. Keeping in mind, coming together right now over Christ. First, I want us to see this in the first two verses. We should unify ourselves around Christ. Look at verse 12 again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Look at what he says. Now, what he's doing here is Paul is giving us an analogy between the human physical body and the church body. So at the end of verse 12, when he says, so it is with Christ, after he's been talking about the body, he's saying, so it is with the body of Christ. He's just showing us that he's making an analogy. He says in verse 13, we're in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. This does not mean that when we put the horse trough up here and get people wet, that that somehow gives them a special place in heaven. It doesn't move them from 125 Silver Street to 123 Bullion Way. It just gets them wet, spiritually speaking. What does it do, though? It shows that they have this difference in their lives, and they want to proclaim it publicly. They're following Christ not only in practice, but also in 
command. You could filter the water, you could drink it. You filter it first because there's people floating in it, right? It's, it's not special water. There's nothing to it. So Paul is not saying here that when you're baptized, that's when you receive the Spirit. You receive the Spirit when you're converted. It's at the time of conversion when the Spirit is received. And he says, you know what? There's lots of people, lots of different types of people who have been given the Spirit, who are like Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all made to drink of that one Spirit. So we should unify ourselves around that Spirit, and that is the Spirit of Christ. Think about how amazing that is. You don't go to a local social club and see people from different parts of the country and different parts of the world and different walks of life just voluntarily coming together. That only happens in the church. You would not find, I promise, you would not find in South Carolina or Alabama or Mississippi or where Jared's from in Tennessee or where Jason's from in North Carolina, you would not find our people getting together voluntarily with Kevin's people. Because we look at them and say, they're funny. Something ain't right there. Now, lest you think I'm just making fun of Southern people, I just described my family. That's how my family thinks. You don't find that happening. Now, and I don't know Seattle. I know it just from hearing, about, from hearing Kevin talk about it, but my guess is, is that you'd find the same type of thing in Seattle. If you get a bunch of Southerners together in Seattle, you wouldn't hear Seattle folks saying, oh, those people are just amazing. They're awesome. We should really all get together with them because they're just amazing folks. No, they, people in Seattle probably go, man, they're weird. And rightly so. Southerners are weird. But what happens in the church? In the church, you get people from Seattle and people from Texas and people from Oregon and people from South Carolina and North Carolina and Alabama and Tennessee and Utah and Nevada and Colorado all coming together all for one thing, and that is for the sake of Christ. You ever heard the song, We're One in the Bond of Love? You know how old that is? That phrase, bond of love, actually comes from the 4th century. It comes from Augustine. Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo. He has the best title in church history. Right? I, I always, every time I heard about that, I thought, who's the Bishop of Elephants? And then I realized, oh, Hippo's a place in northern Africa. Okay, I get it. He's the Bishop of Hippo, and he used to call the Holy Spirit the bond of love. That we would all come together around this bond who is Christ. So we should unify ourselves, first of all, around Christ. Secondly, we should be thankful. We should be thankful for our differences. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. At this point, you almost want to look at Paul and say, thank you, Captain Obvious. Really? The body's different? The physical body's different? Paul, really? Look at 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand... I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong, that wouldn't make it less a part. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole thing were an ear, where would be smell? The physical body is different. Two hands, two feet, two eyes, sometimes more than one mouth. Two ears were different. And he says the body of Christ is the same way. Now, how many of us, though, aren't thankful for differences? How many of us think on a very regular basis, maybe daily, the following? I wish everybody were like me. I wish everybody were perfect like me. 
I wish everybody thought like me and acted like me because the world would be so much easier if everybody were just like me. Well, look, if everybody were like me, we'd do nothing on Sundays but watch NASCAR. We'd watch Rednecks Turn Left. <laughs> Except on Easter and Mother's Day because even in NASCAR we realized that two Sundays are holy. Right? We, we raced last night because you've got to get the race in on the weekend. And then from September to January, we'd all watch college football, not Pac-12. <laughs> college football. <laughs> That's just for Kevin. <laughs> I'm sure that will come up later. <laughs> we put hundreds of thousands of people into stadiums all across the South, and that's what we do. In fact, I would argue that the closest thing you find to religion in the South is found in those stadiums on Saturdays from September to January. It's not found on Sunday morning in a local church. Because people can get excited about football and they get excited about NASCAR, but they can't get excited about Jesus. Aren't you glad that there are differences, though? Because if we were all the same, life would be boring. If everybody was like me, we'd all sit in a room during the week and we would read about philosophy and theology, and history, and worldviews, and how all those things make the world make sense, and or like Jared, right, reading about Isaiah in Hebrew and in German. I'm asleep just talking about it. You might be sitting there going, thank God there are differences, after I describe it that way. You know what? Yeah, thank God there are differences. We should be thankful that there are people in the church who have a calling to clean the toilets, and there are people in the church who have a calling to teach, and people in the church who have a calling to ush, that's the ushers. People who are in the church who have a calling to do all these different things, thank God for those differences because if everybody was the same, let's say everybody is called to serve, then there would be nobody to serve. If everybody was called to teach, there'd be no one to learn. If everybody was called to learn, there'd be no one to teach. If everyone was called to lead, there'd be nobody to lead. So we should thank God for those differences. And then here's why. Thirdly, we should rejoice because God has placed us exactly where He wants us. Look at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Have you ever considered that when you come into this place, or as a believer in Christ, if you go into any other local church on Sunday, the people that are there, that God has called to be there on a regular basis, are there not just because they need something to do on Sunday morning. They're there because God has placed them there for a specific purpose at a specific time for a specific thing to have a ministry with a specific person. Did you ever think, every time on Sundays, I love it at the end of the service when Robert closes because he says, watch for ways and opportunities to encourage people. Encourage one another as you go out. Watch for ways and opportunities to talk about Jesus. Maybe your specific thing that you're called to do today is grab somebody around the shoulders and hug them and say, I love you, I thank God for you. Because you never know, that person might be having the worst Sunday morning of his or her life. Maybe it's your calling to clean toilets. Then guess what? You clean toilets to the glory of God because that's why He put you here. A really good friend of mine up in Morgan County named Jeff Hurlbut moved there in 2011 to start a new church. Morgan County has never had a Christian church in it, ever, until 2011. 
They move into Morgan County, and he's got high school biology teaching experience, so he says, I'm going to go and teach high school biology because the one high school there had one opening, and that was for a guy to teach biology or for somebody to teach biology. So he goes and applies. He doesn't get it, and they tell him it's because you're a Christian. We don't want you here, but we have a custodian position if you'd like that. So he cleaned toilets for four years, and he opened the buildings for four years, and he turned the, or in the South, we say cut the lights on. He turned the lights on. He turned them out. He met every family as they came, and he left, and they left, and he said, for four years, I cleaned toilets to the glory of God, and I unlocked doors to the glory of God, and I turned on lights and adjusted chairs to the glory of God, and now when you go around Morgan County with Jeff, every one of the 10,000 people in that county says, hey, Pastor Jeff, how are you? Because he cleaned toilets to the glory of God. Because God put him there at that moment, in that season, to clean toilets in order to meet people. Had that been me, I'd have looked at that guy and said, I'm not cleaning toilets, dude. I'm here to teach biology. I've got degrees. I've got experience. What are you talking about? I'm not cleaning toilets. What did Jeff say? God put me here to clean toilets. Where's the brush? So guess what? God has put you here for a specific purpose because he wants you here at this time, in this place, to do something specific. Fourthly, this is the hardest one. We should assume the usefulness of others. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. How often do we do that in church? It's so easy. I can tell you from when I pastored in Louisville for five years, serving on a, on a seminary faculty, being a leader in the church, wherever I've been, it is so easy to think, well, I'm a leader and you're not. I'm better than you are. And that is pure, outright sinfulness. It's also easy to sit there and think, oh, well, I would say this differently, or I would say it better. Just let me get up and teach. Well, that's not where God has put us, is it? We also think sometimes, well, because I'm leading, or I'm leading this community group, maybe a person in a community group thinks, well, maybe I'm just not as useful. Or the leader thinks those people are not as useful because they're not leading. Guess what? If God has placed us here for a specific thing, at a specific time, for a specific purpose then we are all useful in the kingdom equally. I'm not any better because I'm up here preaching than you are because you're sitting there listening. I hope you're listening. We just have different callings. That's it. The senior pastor is no better than the custodian. We're all followers of Christ. We're all called to a specific thing, and we should assume that everybody else here is useful because God is the one who has put us here. It's not about us. It's about Him. We get into trouble when we start to think, well, my calling is better because look at what I can do. Let me tell you something, Jack. You can't do squat. Because if it were all up to you, you'd mess it up. I'm the same way. But because God has given you that gifting, it's all about Him and not about us, and that's what makes us useful. Fifthly, we should suffer and rejoice with each other. Look at the end of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And then 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What would happen if, let's just, this is just off the top of my head, I'm not specifically pointing anybody out, what would happen if the Jones family drove up this morning and they drove up in a new car? How many of you would say, praise God, God bless them, He still works among creation, He gave them the means to go out and get a new car. Thank God for that. 
Maybe there's a family, we'll call them the Smiths, that are trying to keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> and they say, well, how come they got a new car? Why don't I get a new car? Where's my new car? We needed one more than they did. This text is telling us that if one member rejoices, we all rejoice. If somebody at the church gets a new house, praise God, because they're not homeless. We should be praising God along with them that they were able to do that, that God has blessed them with that. It's harder to rejoice with other believers than it is to suffer. It's easy to say, oh, I feel for you, or I'm so sorry, or I can suffer along with you, because when you're doing that, that person's in a lower position than you are. When you rejoice with somebody, they're in a higher position than you are, and it hurts our pride. Today is the perfect day to talk about rejoicing and suffering, isn't it, on Mother's Day? Many of you thank God for your mothers or your grandmothers. I do. And I rejoice in that way, but you know what? This is also a day of suffering for me, because in December of 2013, I lost my mom. I lost one grandmother earlier than that, and my second grandmother in April of 2014. This is a hard day for me because I wake up thinking about my mom and my grandmothers. I think about what Paul told Timothy to think of, thank God for Eunice, your mom, and Lois, your grandmother. I had a great Eunice and two amazing Loises. But it's a hard day. Maybe there are couples who are trying to conceive and have children and can't and it's a really it's a day of suffering not rejoicing because we hear yay thank god for moms and we should but then they hear that and they think oh i wish we could be there so this is a perfect day when we can rejoice with those who rejoice and suffer and weep with those who weep and show sympathy and empathy for those who are going through difficult times so we should suffer and rejoice together and then finally the last few verses, we should always seek to represent Christ. Look at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and prophets, and he goes through all these different giftings. It's interesting in verse 29 and 30, the way the Greek is constructed here is, is Paul assumes the answer to these questions is going to be no, because he says, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. And on and on and on he goes. Guess what? There are different giftings in the church but he says at the beginning of this, we are all here to represent Christ. A former colleague of mine called this vice regency. That's a big fancy term for being the representative of Christ on the earth as a Christian. Do you represent Christ everywhere you go? My grandmother who died in the early 2000s used to say, Honey, I hope that when Jesus comes back, when he comes to get you, he won't be embarrassed to get you where you are. Woo. Or he won't have to walk up to you and say, is that really what you're going to say right now? Because I'm here to get you. Did I really die for that? That's what Paul is saying to us. That we are all representatives of Christ. And guess what? If we're divided in here, the people out there won't want anything to do with us. Because there's enough division outside. They don't need it inside. So what are we to do as a church? We're to come together right now over Christ. Are there different giftings? Yes. Are there different talents? Yes. But you're not the one who did that. God gave those giftings and those talents to you for the sake and the purpose of the kingdom and the upbuilding of each other. Band, you can come on up. Prayer team, you can go ahead and come up as well.
there's going to be some people stationed around here. We're going to have little lanyards on. It's going to say prayer team. Maybe today you need somebody to rejoice with you or weep and suffer with you. These are people who would be more than willing and able to do so. Maybe today you've, this is the first time you've heard about this Jesus guy, and, or maybe you've heard about him for years and years and decades, and you've just never given a real good thought about who Jesus is. You've never placed your faith and your trust in his death. The Bible says that we were created to be in a loving relationship with him, but we messed up. The Bible calls that sin, and we get paid for sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says there are two ways to escape that death. You can take Leviticus 11.44 or you can take John 3.16. Leviticus 11.44 says, Be perfect as God is perfect. Be holy as He is holy from the day you're conceived until the day that you die. You can never have a bad word, thought, action, deed ever, including when you are, will be, or were a teenager. (laughs) You can never take something that doesn't belong to you. You can never do any of those things. We all know that none of us live up to that standard. None of us live up to the standard of perfection. Then there's John 3, 16 that says, If you'll trust that Christ did enough, God will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That if you'll place your trust that His death covered your sins, covered all those things that you have done, will do, that God will say, You are mine. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about that today. These folks that are standing around would love to talk to you about that. If you just need somebody to pray with you, they would love to do that as well. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we ask today that you would remind us that we are, as a church, as believers in Christ, to come together. We're to do it right now over you. We're not to gather together because of personal desires or personal dreams or some personal thing that we want, but we're to come together because of the sake of Christ. Lord, if there's one here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, God, I ask that you would change that person's heart from stone to flesh. Help them to see you for who you are, the graceful, loving, merciful Redeemer. We thank you because of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In the morning, when I rise in the morning, when I rise in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. Jesus, you can have all this world.